Please be seated. So we're going to jump right in this morning with a question. What difference does the Holy Spirit make? What difference does the Holy Spirit make? Last week we celebrated Pentecost, the day on which God gave his Holy Spirit to Jesus' disciples. And we saw the impact that the Spirit made in their lives as flames rested over their heads and they began to proclaim the good news about Jesus in, in languages that they didn't know. Without, without a doubt, the Holy Spirit made a difference that day. But what about today? What about us? I have never had a flame appear over my head, at least not to my knowledge, nor have I spontaneously been given the ability to speak in a foreign language. But I still believe that I have the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit makes a difference in my life. But what difference and how? Those are questions that I want for us to bring to Paul's letter to the Romans, specifically those verses that we read just a few moments ago from Romans 8. These are part of an extended reflection on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened on the day of Pentecost was unique. The Spirit doesn't normally manifest his presence with fire and foreign languages, but the Spirit is nonetheless still present and active among us. And that's what Paul writes about here in his letter to the Christians in Rome. So turn with me to page 944 in your red Bibles so that you can follow along as we look at Paul's teaching here. The first thing that we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit brings the power of resurrection life into the midst of our earthly lives. The Holy Spirit brings the power of resurrection life into the midst of our earthly lives. So we begin at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers were debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So earlier in this letter, Paul made it clear that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit as God's gift to us. According to Paul, the Spirit isn't some kind of force or special power. The Holy Spirit is a person, God himself, who miraculously and mysteriously takes up residence within us. And according to Paul, part of the special work of the Holy Spirit is to create new life. One of the most common ways, in fact, in which Paul refers to the Spirit in his letters is as the life giver. When he talks about the Spirit in this way, he's picking up on a long tradition that stretches all the way back to the presence of the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1. So what is Paul saying in these verses that we just read? He's saying this. He's saying, the Spirit of God himself lives within you. This is the same spirit who gave life to creation at the beginning of all things and who broke into the tomb of Jesus, raising him to new life from the dead. One day, he will do the same for you, raising you from, from the dead to new and eternal life. But know this, the spirit is already at work in you today, bringing about new and glorious life even in your weak and mortal body. 
Now, Paul talks about what this looks like in different ways in his various letters. And here, he drills down into one particular way in which the Spirit does this. And it's one that's deeply counterintuitive to us. The Spirit brings about the power and the joy of resurrection life by enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what he says in verse 13. Well, what does Paul mean by that? So three times in verses 12 and 13, Paul refers to the flesh. The Greek word is sarx. And for Paul, it's an entirely negative term. He doesn't use it to refer to our physical bodies, but to the sinful and rebellious side of our humanity. For Paul, our flesh is the part of us that draws us away from God. It's our lust, our pride, our self-centeredness, our willingness to use and abuse others, anger, violence. And Paul says that under the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to put these things to death. So if we want to enjoy life in the Spirit, we will learn to kill the flesh. And let me be clear, this doesn't mean that Paul has something against our physical bodies. No religion in the world places more value on the human body than Christianity. As I said two weeks ago, Jesus still has a human body and he will continue to have a body for eternity. Bodies are good things. So good that God himself put one on in order to save us. But what we do in and with our bodies all too often brings dishonor to God and to these bodies that he's given to us. Because of this, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to have God take up residence within us is to name and to destroy our sin. I have a friend <clears throat> who came to faith later in life. <clears throat> Excuse me. He'd been a churchgoer as a kid, but he'd wandered from the faith and settled into hard skepticism as an adult. He did this when a growing dependence on pornography made his already difficult marriage dry and empty. Well, finally, the Lord reached down and brought him to his senses. And when he did, not only did this friend come to new faith and life in Jesus, he was set free from the power of sin. He came to understand that sin wasn't simply the accumulated misdeeds of the day, but it was a power that enslaved him. And as the Holy Spirit took up residence within him, he was able to break free from that power. For the first time in years, he began to live. He learned to laugh again. Not the sharp, harsh laughter of a cynic that his family all knew, but the the gen genuine belly laughter of a man who's got nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to be afraid of. He began to experience the power of the resurrection and resurrection life here and now. And one way he did was by killing off his sin under the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you are still confessing the same sins you were confessing five years ago, then it may be that you need to be reminded of this work of the Spirit. So many of us, after a season of spiritual vitality when we come to faith, settle into a rhythm of what can only be described as spiritual slovenliness. 
where we just stop caring about our sin. Now, there are lots of ways in which this happens and reasons why this happens. But as we think about applying what this means in our lives today, I want to focus on just one. We stop caring about our sin when we start thinking about it generically. So there's a difference between asking the Lord to forgive you for your pride and asking the Lord to forgive you for treating your sister like dirt on the phone earlier in the day because you think she's stupid and ill-informed and not worth listening to. If you want to learn to kill off your sin, you will have to learn to name it and specifically repent of it. Don't just confess to the Lord that you're lustful. Tell him who you were looking at and what you were thinking. Instead of confessing that you occasionally have too much to drink, be honest and tell him you got drunk last night because you felt sorry for yourself and you didn't want to lie awake feeling anxious about work. Now here's why I think this matters. First, generic confession, it allows us to sidestep our shame and ignore our actual sin. It gives us permission to kind of gloss over what we've done instead of honestly and accurately identifying how we've rebelled against God and hurt those around us. Generic confession, it minimizes sin. Second, in order to destroy something, in order to kill something, you have to see it clearly. So you don't kill a deer by pointing your rifle in its general direction. You take careful aim. We're all selfish, but we're all selfish in different ways. If you don't take time to look back over your day or your week and identify how exactly you were selfish and then confess it to the Lord, you'll never stop being selfish in that particular way. You'll just keep asking for generic forgiveness instead of seeing, identifying, and killing off your sin. Satan wins when sin is generic. But we have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to kill off our sin when we name it before the Lord our God. So what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our lives? The Spirit brings the power of resurrection life into the midst of our earthly lives by enabling us to name and slay the sin in our lives. But that's not the only thing the Spirit does. The Spirit also draws us into a new relationship with God that sets us free from fear. This is the second thing I want to draw your attention to. So look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice all of the family language in these verses. We're called sons in verse 14, which is inclusive of daughters. We're referred to as children of God in verse 16. And all of this takes place by the work of the Spirit, who's described as the spirit of adoption in verse 15. When we come to faith in Jesus and submit to him as Lord, he makes us righteous before God. Our status therefore changes. 
We're no longer under judgment because we've been redeemed by his sacrifice on the cross. But something else happens at this point as well. The Holy Spirit inhabits us and brings us into a new and different relationship with God, making us God's children. So not only does our status with God change, so does the nature of our relationship. Now this language of adoption, it signifies something that never ceases to amaze me. God chose us. He chose you. He chose me. He didn't have to take us in. He's not under some kind of divine obligation to care for us, but he does. And he's invited us to call him not sir or mister, He's invited us to call him Abba. It's worth noting that this Aramaic word, which is equivalent to Papa in English, it's preserved in the Greek New Testament because the early Christians thought it was so special. Abba is what Jesus called God when he prayed. And it's what God invites us to call him as those who have been redeemed by the blood of his son. So we call on God the Father in the same way Jesus did as Abba because God loves us in the same way he loves his son Jesus. There's something else I want you to notice in these few verses. It's the pair of contrasts in verse 15. Paul says that we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But instead we received a spirit of adoption that leads to this cry of intimacy, Abba. Our boys have been playing Little League Baseball this season, and it's given me lots of time to watch fathers and sons together. It's been fun. It's been fun to see how fathers correct and encourage and cheer on their boys, but it's also been a little disturbing at times. Some fathers are impossible to please. They find fault not just in mistakes, but in missed opportunities. A double should have been a triple. A throw should have been quicker. And when there's an actual mistake, they go ballistic, yelling, sometimes cursing at their kids in public. Now, boys with dads like these, they live their life on the field, glancing anxiously at the bleachers. They cringe instinctively at every single mistake they make. They fear the long walk back to the car after the game. When you have to earn your father's approval day after day after day, you end up living in fear. Shame becomes your constant companion. You're always looking over your shoulder, hoping your father will pay attention to something else. But when the day begins with your father's affirmation and declaration of his love, you're able to live with an incredible sense of freedom. That's the new relationship that we have with God through his spirit who lives within us. There's no fear in this relationship. There's no uncertainty. There's no withholding of judgment until grades come in. There's no harsh review of daily deeds. There are no threats. Of course, God is God, always to be held in awe. But for those who've been adopted, awe and intimacy go hand in hand as we learn to call him Abba. So what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our lives? 
The Spirit brings the power of resurrection life into the midst of our earthly lives by enabling us to name and slay the sin in our lives. The Spirit also draws us into a new relationship with God characterized by intimacy instead of fear. Well, finally, by bringing the future into the present, the Spirit gives us confidence to face anything that lies ahead of us. That's our final observation. So in the Roman world in which Paul lived, uh, adoption was the legal means by which a person could be officially brought into a family in order to enjoy all of the rights and privileges normally granted only to biological children. So it was common for a wealthy citizen in Rome to go out and find a worthy young man to adopt as his son so that he could bestow on him his wealth and his family name and his position in society. So for this reason, adoption, it was closely linked to inheritance in the Roman mind. And so it was for Paul. So he writes in verses 16 and 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So these verses at the end, they're a bridge to the rest of the chapter, which describes the coming transformation of all creation when Jesus returns in glory. They point first to the fact that our eternal future is entirely secure. Paul says that we are heirs of God. So in other words, everything that belongs to God, he will one day share with us. And in order to make this absolutely clear, Paul explains that we are co-heirs with Jesus. As the risen king of all creation, Jesus will share with us as his brothers and sisters. That's the end of our story. It's not death followed by uncertainty. It's death, yes, but then resurrection and the inheritance of kings. Have you ever picked up a book fallen in love with the main character and then skip to the end just to make sure that everything turns out okay. This is kind of what Paul is doing for us right here. He's flipping over to the end. Although our immediate future is mostly unknown to us, our eternal futures are secure. And because of this ultimate certainty, we can face the present with confidence no matter what life brings. Paul alludes to the uncertainties of life here at the end of verse 17 as he mentions our suffering. Between now and Christ's return, if we truly follow him, we will suffer as Jesus suffered. There's no doubt about it. But those sufferings, they can't change the ultimate outcome, which is glory. As Paul says in the very next verse, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us that's hard for us to get our heads around the Holy Spirit but passages like this they help by showing us who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does the Holy Spirit brings the power of resurrection life into the midst of our earthly lives in part by enabling us to name and kill the sin in our lives the Spirit also draws us into a new relationship with God one that is marked by intimacy instead of fear And by bringing the future into the present, 
The Spirit gives us confidence to face anything that lies ahead. I want to end just by inviting you into a moment of quiet prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life in these ways. Let's take a moment to be quiet and then I'll close us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here with us, that you've taken up residence within us, that you've brought the power of resurrection life into the present in the midst of these mortal bodies of ours. We pray that you would manifest your power and your presence and the reality of resurrection in our lives by by enabling us to kill the sin in our lives by drawing us each day into the intimacy of this new relationship we have with God that's been bought for us by the blood of Jesus and established by your presence within us. And we pray, Lord, that in the midst of suffering, you would bring the certainty of the future, glory and inheritance into the present, that we might live with confidence and freedom and joy. Holy Spirit, be with us. Bring these things about in our lives for your honor and glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.